Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Candace Creaseman Mowry, and this is Beyond Therapy. It only takes us coming together, making just one life better than we found the flame. Well, welcome back to Beyond Therapy, everyone. On today's episodes, we're going to be talking about the invisible struggles of mental health in the black community due to racism experienced in schools, workplaces, and community settings. We're going to focus on how racism can impact our clients' mental health and the therapeutic relationship with an emphasis on the role of microaggressions in perpetuating white supremacy. So again, a meaty topic. So to dig into this, I'm so pleased to be joined by Keisha Bryan, who is a licensed clinical social worker and a licensed clinical addiction specialist. Keisha has worked in various healthcare settings with individuals that suffer from substance use disorders and mental health issues. She's led groups, seminars, and retreats on a variety of topics, including the impact of addictions on family members, divorce recovery, and depression. And Keisha's passion is working with black men and women that are battling the psychological impact of racism. Keisha offers individual and group therapy that provides safe spaces for her clients to process their racial trauma as well as heal from these traumas and various legacy burdens that have been negatively impacting the client's mental health. Keisha practices through the lens of internal family systems. Welcome, Keisha. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here, Candice. Awesome. Well, I wonder if we can jump in just by learning a little bit about what your path has looked like. So if you can just tell us a little bit about how you came to be an LCSW, an LCAS, and maybe into private practice. So my journey is, um, I just kind of, I claim it as just kind of fate, just things just kind of rolled, I guess, how, how they were supposed to roll. Um, I graduated and my first job out of school was actually working with moms who had young children that were at risk for developmental delay. And so I really did enjoy that job. It was through a local health department, but I kept wanting to go like deeper, deeper with my clients and just the whole connecting them to services was great, but, you know, I just wanted to do more and, um, you know, I saw some kind of cognitive things going on with some of my clients. And so I was like, you know, I think it's time for me to step into the clinical world. And so I started working with um, individuals that are on medication assisted therapies um, for opioid addictions. And I did that for about seven years, maybe. Um, And then I became, I gained my LCSW and I'm also a licensed clinical addiction specialist through that path and working in methadone maintenance probably taught me so much about practice. I I often tell new people, if you can work at a methadone maintenance or opioid treatment program, because I guess now they have, it's just not methadone, but when we started, it was mostly methadone. Um, If you could do that for a year, you'll be so prepared um, for whatever clinical setting you go into. And so I got a private practice itch around 20, um, 11. And I started just working one day a week out of a doctor's office and I saw some of their patients. And then 2012, I just took the big jump and I quit. Um, 
my full-time job, I found a part-time job and I opened private practice. And within six months, I was full-time private practice. Wow. That is a quick transition. Yeah. And so it, um, it is ebbed and flowed. You know, the, the great thing about private practice is it can be whatever you want it to be. So there's some years where I'm doing 28 <laughs> sessions a week, which I'm not doing that anymore because um, I now have children. So the beautiful thing about being in private practice is it can it can grow with you as you grow in life. Well, I think it's so interesting as you describe sort of how prepared you felt after working at the methadone treatment center. I kind of have a similar feeling about that. It's like, surely there can't be much more difficult spaces to work in. You know, so it's sort of like if I if I survived here. Yes. <laughs> so I wonder if there were like kind of key pieces of that experience that really sort of shored up your confidence and, you know, just made you really sort of feel like you could kind of take on whatever you needed to. Yeah, I, I think one thing for me that that setting helped was my assessment skills. Not to toot my own horn, but my assessment skills are second to nobody. <laughs> um, because when those clients come in, they may not come back. Um, and so you really have to get to know them, to connect with them, and to also see their world and what has happened to lead them up to this point within an hour and a half, two hour session. And then you also have to connect with them and give them hope that it can get better so that they can come back tomorrow and follow the treatment plan that y'all set out on that day one. And this is often while they are in withdrawal. Mm -hmm. And so I think that setting for me at least provided like I had to get it done. It was, it wasn't much room for fluff. Um, and so I've, I've often had um, the physicians there comment and just people say that like, um, my assessment skills. Cause you know, towards the end, I was only doing assessments there for about two years. Um, so I think that really kind of helped me decide what is what, what can I put in what box um, without, you know, like crippling the client and giving them these big diagnoses that will follow them and all of that, but to get what needs to be get done to connect with them, to give them hope so that they can come back. Mm -hmm. Wow. I just, I mean, I hear sort of how, skillfully you were able to sort of do the assessment piece, which is such a beast when you think about just the amount of content you're trying to gather to get a standard CCA kind of done. Uh, so like just balancing that with just such a deep empathy for, you know, how vulnerable folks are when they come in to get assessed for this. I mean, and they're literally in withdrawals, like trash cans. Here's the bathroom. Like, yeah. These people were sick. I mean, it's it's a very humbling job. Also, um, any, you know, that that is an addiction. I think more so now than probably when I was working there, any and everybody's coming through the door. And so it really does challenge your stereotypes mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. what um, people with substance use disorders are, what they do, what they look like, where they go, where they work. So it was just so meaty. It, it didn't feel that way when we were waking up at 5 a.m. to go to work. 5 a.m., 5 a.m. <laughs> but <laughs> it was, um, I, I'm very thankful for that experience. 
Well, I certainly, I share, I mean, that it's just so cool to hear someone else sort of articulate things I haven't really thought about in a long time. You know, it's just how humbling it was, absolutely, and how skill building, you know, it was. It's interesting because I feel like, especially working with supervisees now, I think one of the main things that they feel fearful of or kind of less competent in is in assessment and diagnosis. Um, So at least in the like counseling realm. Um, so yeah, I definitely connect with how impactful it was to sort of be on the spot consistently having to do assessments regularly, um, both in that setting and like just general community mental health. Uh, yeah, either you kind of sink or swim. You sink or swim. Yeah. There's no middle, but if you stay around long enough, you will swim. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the catch. If you stay around long enough. (laughs) Yeah. That's the catch. Yeah. I wanted to jump into one of your specialties that you mentioned. So kind of a a combination specialty of uh, racial trauma and legacy burdens. So can you just tell us a little bit about how racial trauma presents in some of your clients? Yeah, um, it can be very nuanced if your ear is not attuned to what they're saying and how they are acting. And so that's why I'm really glad that we're having this conversation today because I've found that a lot of white therapists um, are not attuned to listen and to see the impact that racial traumas have on their clients. And so um, I think a lot of it, it can, I mean, it, 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 where doesn't it show up, right? Like it shows up in, um, parenting situations. It shows up in, um, I had this issue with my coworker, um, you know, assessing if there's a racial undertone there. I got passed over for promotion, assessing, you know, if it's there or um, I'm not able to make friends, you know, those deep connections in my neighborhood. I guess for me, I will say, because I also have the Black lived experience, um, some things don't have to be spoken just because I've lived it or I've had friends, um, family members, parents. I saw my parents go through it. Like, so there are some situations that just because I have been raised or reared in that set of norms that I may get as a um, black clinician. Um, So I will start with that caveat. Um, But I think some things that are, that the other clinicians can use to pick up on, is if things just aren't making sense or if you're putting, here's a good one. If you're putting yourself in that situation and you're like, well, that probably wouldn't happen to me or I've never heard that happening before. Ding, 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 ding. That could be a key that there's another factor in that interaction that's working. That could be racial trauma or legacy burden or societal burden that America has placed on us. So I think that could be a great like red flag of, wait, this isn't adding up. Yeah, that sounds I mean, so useful for non-Black therapists, right? Is like, okay, if I'm sort of orienting to my privilege and my experience and this person's having an experience that I've never had right? and they're, you know, racially different from me, then my first step probably needs to be to name that there is a racial trauma piece to that most likely. Yes. And another thing that just kind of came to my head as we were talking is, I encourage clinicians to, if your if your clients are saying it, you need to believe them. Mm-hmm. You need to believe them and not, you know, because our brains, we, our brains always try to get information so that things make sense. 
But if it two plus two is not adding up to four, I think a lot of times we have a tendency as humans to go, they must have perceived something wrong. There's something missing where no, like if your client is telling you that one, that means that you've done something good because you already have a therapeutic relationship established and there is some trust there. And then two, as you need to believe your client when they tell you these things are happening. Mm-hmm. That feels like such an important piece. And I'm, I'm just going to try to kind of think out loud around that because I have this conversation with um, supervisees a lot, which is that like your job is not to find out the truth of an external situation. Did your client's partner cheat on them or not? Not your job to figure it out. You're not the PI. Right. What I hear you describing and what I mean also just resonates deeply with me is that this is an exception you know, so to honor that someone has experienced racism. Yeah, you're you're kind of truth telling about an external situation, but it, it doesn't seem like there's any other way to really build the therapeutic alliance to process the trauma. I don't know what shows up for you around that distinction, because you do a lot of couples work and family work and that, you know, we can easily get pulled into trying to figure out somebody else <laughs> that's not our client. So Tell me about that. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. And I'm going to tell you what helped me with that. Um, I have been an IFS, Internal Family Systems, trained clinician since 2019. And I'm recently certified. So I'm excited about that. But one thing that IFS, Internal Family Systems, has really taught me is no matter the situation, we are one person, but we are all comprised of different parts of us, right? And so we often talk in parts language just in everyday life, like, oh, I really want this, but a part of me is like, no, I don't need to do that. That's parts work, right? And so um, parts work has really allowed me to have my clients even sit in a situation and go, okay, it doesn't matter what triggered it, what parts are up, what stories are the parts telling? How are you interacting with these parts and how is the parts interacting with this external situation? And so I just love that because it really takes the onus off the client and you as the therapist to play that judge and jury and investigator to figure out if it's true or not. Right. Because if the parts feel it, it's true to that part. Right. Like I can say something to my six year old and in her six year old mind you know, she processes it one way and I can say whatever I want, but in her mind, that's how it is. And that's just what we have to go with. And so our parts are kind of like kids where they can only process information that's age appropriate. And so, you know, that part that was triggered, a nine-year-old part that was triggered by somebody not saying hello to you in the mall, when they may not have really seen you, that part isn't really even trying to hear that, right? Because it just knows it's hurt in the moment and it feels ignored. I'm such a beginner intro IFS person that I don't even know if I have any business like trying it out on people. Cause I like read a book. I did like a 10 minute training, not a 10 minute training. It was a little longer than that. But anyway, I, I am just so into this parts idea. It just feels like it opens up so many doors. It, you know, breaks down so many barriers around like how we conceptualize resistance and that sort of thing. Exactly. So I'm super excited to hear your, you know, much more educated take on this in terms of when you're doing parts work with someone who has racial trauma. 
I know everybody's parts are different, but do you notice any themes to what shows up for them? What are their parts like when they're trying to process that sort of trauma? Some of the themes that I notice is um, parts are mistrusting, you know, mistrusting of a situation. Parts, I know for me, my parts go back to some of the things that my grandmother taught me, right? Mm. And so she was born in the 1920s in North Carolina, in the South. And so hearing some of the stories of her riding past places and seeing burning crosses and lawns and, you know, different, different stories I remember hearing as a child, my parts definitely, that, that comes up whenever there's a racial undertone. Um, definitely some, some things that our parts do when they experience racial trauma is um, shift Right. Like, so there's this um, thing called like code shifting that, you know, we talk a lot about when working with black women in particular, but really just any kind of any really minority person of color in America where we might act one way around people that are familiar, family, friends. But when we get in certain situations like work or academic settings, it's very professional, nothing personal, just almost robotic. Um, because there is a a sense there that we need to behave perfect and we're not allowed the ability to actually be human and make mistakes and do all of that. And so parts might want to shift. Parts might want to overcompensate. So there's just a ton of coping mechanisms that parts utilize when coming up against these situations because it feels so giant to our little parts. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just a whole other... I think depth to consider when you think about sort of the enormity of these systems and institutions. So just how prevalent and available microaggressions, outright racism, you know, those experiences are. And then you think of like just one little tiny kid part trying to handle it. Right. You mentioned too, like, I love that you bring your own parts work into it. And I, I, is that sort of an aspect of IFS too, that it's sort of like a mutual exploration of parts? Okay. Um, I wonder if that is a, an aspect of like what it means to, to join with someone in session, you know, especially if you've got two black, a black client and a black therapist, right? Is like, I wonder if those parts that have seen the same things see each other. The way I practice, I'm, 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 I practice in a very conversational kind of way. Um, our parts definitely, my parts show up and my parts give validation to that person's parts mm-hmm. because I've been there. Right. And so, I mean, you know, it is a client patient relationship, but honestly, at the end of the day, no matter who's in the room, race, color, uh, gender, we're just two people. We're having a human experience. And so validation just goes a long way. And so, you know, my parts definitely show up. I don't even try to keep them out of the room. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some parts that, you know, or may get a little excited, like me too, me too, you know, and I might have to say, okay, well, you validated, let's go sit in the corner because it's not about you. But, um, and that brings us to another point. And I think something that would be helpful, and we definitely talk about a lot in the IFS community is non-Black therapists are really just, really a part of IFS. You cannot be a good IFS clinician until you know your own parts and you know how they show up in the room. And so I would definitely challenge the listeners to 
explore your own parts. What comes up? What is coming up for you now as we having these conversation? You know, jot it down. No judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, because that is your homework, right? That is what you have to. That's what's showing up in your sessions, whether you know it or not. And a lot of black clients were, I know I am when I'm in a, in a patient, um, provider relationship, I'm attuned to your whiteness and I know your whiteness is in the room mm-hmm. and I know how it's showing up, but does the provider know that? Right. Have you had experiences where the provider did know that and was able to bring it into the room successfully? Yes, I have. I have. And I, I'm very purposeful because to me, relationship is big. Like that's very high on my um, Clifton Strength Finders relationship building. Um, so for me, that is very important. If I cannot trust you, talk to you unfiltered, um, then probably you should not be my provider. So I have in the past had, you know, providers that it came up and they did not notice, but, um, I appreciate it when my therapist or various other healthcare providers at least bring it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm and acknowledge it. If you were to think about like how, because I mean, you're in the field, right? So you sort of know what to look for in a lot of ways and certainly personally know what you're looking for in a relationship with a therapist for folks that are, especially BIPOC folks, but maybe specifically black African-American folks who are maybe thinking about looking for a therapist. What are some of the, what's some of the guidance that you might offer for what I feel like is kind of inevitable now, which is that there's next to no therapist. Most of us are white. So what if you kind of get stuck with someone who you don't match and that's maybe important, understandably important. So like what kind of guidance can you offer, I guess, for like weeding out folks that aren't likely to meet you where you are? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And I think that's, um, kind of where we are because it's just not enough of us right now to meet the demand that is going on in society in general. And then when you add warning, specifically a black therapist, um, that narrows the playing field even more. And so some of my advice is therapy isn't as faux pas as it used to be. Like ask friends and family, if you're comfortable enough, um, if they have any, if they know of anybody or have any recommendations, um, I've even seen in some like Facebook groups um, or social media groups where people are like, I'm looking for this type of therapist here. Does anybody know? And I'm just amazed that, you know, we're at a place in society where you can literally ask that online and get like 10 different options. I think that's pretty cool. But also, you know, interview therapists, um, just because you get sent to them does not mean that that is your person. And so ask them their views on race and you know, if they've done their work um, or if they're aware of how racism or whiteness shows up in um, therapy, in the therapy room or even in various medical situations. So it, it you, you kind of have to date a therapist before you like marry somebody and that's your long term person that you're going to do deep trauma work with. Right. Like don't don't just swipe right. <laughs> Yes. And also the theoretical orientation as well. Um, Make sure that aligns with what you want, what you want it to be. Well, there are a couple of different directions. I feel like we could go with that and hopefully we'll get to both of them. But I 
I kind of want to think about it on the other end of things. So, right, we're talking about what clients can kind of expect and what questions they can ask. I'm curious what it has been like for you in private practice. I mean, I'm thinking especially as 2020 happened, how have you managed not being able to serve everyone? Does that show up for you in a particular kind of way? Like, because we can only see so many people in a day. Yeah, on a personal level, 2020 broke a lot of us, mm-hmm. me included. Yeah. Um, because I just remember around, I think it was the summertime when George Floyd was murdered. Um, and there were some other things in, in the news that was just like, this is overload on top of a pandemic that was was and is still killing a lot of black people in this country. Um, so that was hard for me personally. Um, I, I remember, you know, and I'm also parenting. <laughs> so I, girl, I was, I was seeing people until eight, nine o'clock at night. It was ridiculous. Wow. And so, because I, there was a part of me that felt the need to show up and almost like a first responder kind of mm-hmm. capacity. Mm-hmm. Like my people are bleeding out. I need to be here for them. I need to put my needs aside and, you know, help, help, help out my people. So I was working three, four nights a week until nine, 10 o'clock at night. It was ridiculous. Um, but I finally had to sit and say, this burden that I'm trying to carry as a single clinician who's working semi full time, this is a societal burden, mm-hmm. not necessarily mine to carry. I do what I can. Um, I provide referrals if I cannot meet that need, but just kind of really come into understanding of what it was like, what I can control, what I can't control, and also being fair and kind to me and my family. Mm-hmm. And so I then started doing more looking at the big, like, what advocacy can I do? Where can I channel this energy, right, to make a, a larger impact? What political candidates can I support? What what organizations can I donate to? Yeah, did you find um, particular outlets that have really kind of, I mean, maybe not filled you back up in any kind of way, but that allowed you a little more space to rest while still feeling kind of connected to those values? Yes. And definitely, I mean, my own IFS therapy, I really kind of dug deep right after I was coming out of that lull and I was doing IFS therapy. I even, I have an IFS coach, different spiritual retreats, really getting, really getting in touch with my spirituality um, was very helpful for me. And also community and connecting with other people was self-care. Basically, you know, self-care, how I how I saw fit at that particular time in life. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned spirituality, because that was that was a word that showed up as you were describing sort of this process of just, you know, pouring yourself out because it was now you're a first responder in this kind of situation and hitting that wall of knowing that you could see 20 people a day. And the suffering and pain is still there. Like that to me is like the crux of a spiritual crisis is what do we do when we have to acknowledge that suffering and pain 
are inherent. Not necessarily that it should be the kind of pain, you know, of racism, like that shouldn't be, that's not inherent. But so how, how did you manage that piece? A lot of prayer. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of prayer. A lot of trying to understand God as I understood him. Um, And where this all plays into society, um, how this shows up in my life. Boundaries. Boundaries. Yeah, I just, I personally came to a place where I could not. I had to take, I had to take a break from whiteness. Like, I really kind of like. Were you able to? It's just so everywhere. It is everywhere. It is everywhere. Um, luckily, we luckily we were quarantining pretty hard. I don't want to say that helped, but I would. Girl, I wasn't even going to Target. That's like the whitest white place that you could go. It is the whitest place that you can go. Yeah, I was like, I'm not dealing with any of it. Like, I'm getting my groceries to my car because um, I even remember some feelings of you know, it was that, is the pandemic over? Is it not? And I just remember like a lot of family and friends who are more frontline employees, they were really concerned about their health. And then they got these customers coming here and they weren't as concerned about protective equipment. And it was just, I was just like, I need, I need a break from a lot of that. And so I took a break from media, social media, and then just kind of, but I tell you one thing that I did that I think really paid off was I started putting a lot of pro black and brown images in my home. We started watching media and being very intentional. And I remember at this time, my daughter, who was, you know, four, three, four, um, was obsessed with Elsa. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Yes. She was obsessed with Elsa and, um, you know, she would often say she she wanted hair like Elsa. So that was kind of my key of, okay, I need to start promoting images that look a little more similar to her so that she does not internalize this Eurocentric standard of beauty at four. So early. So early. But you know, it. I think what I did worked because we were coming home from school the other day and she looks at me and she goes, out of nowhere, mom, I used to be obsessed with Elsa, but I'm not anymore. I really love my hair. I love my curly hair. And a lot of my friends say they wish they had hair like mine. Oh, wow. And I was like, okay, that that might have worked. Just, you know, having her block out those Eurocentric standards and just allowing us to be submerged in pro-Black images. Well, I want to circle back to um, you mentioned that one of the things that would be important for for black clients to think about when they're interviewing a therapist is um, what their therapeutic approach is, you know, their theoretical orientation. So we know that psychotherapy in general has this like the rest of the world, a Eurocentrism problem, a white centered kind of problem. So what has your relationship with standard practices, you know, the sort of things that folks are going to find on psychology today or when they Google a therapist, like I do CBT, I do motivational interviewing, knowing that these things, I mean, CBT, I know more about that's history than I do motivational interviewing, but knowing that most of these models originate from a place that 
you know, idealizes whiteness and maleness. Um, what's your relationship like with those approaches? You know, I, ever since about 2018, I, I don't, I don't vibe with CBT that well. There's a place for it. Right. And I think, um, if you're doing like kind of short, brief interventions, you know, like a EAP kind of client, you have four sessions, something like a CBT kind of approach to me would make a bit more sense. But when you're dealing with trauma, I just have a hard time teaching people how to think and not really acknowledging the trauma that is there, especially when the trauma is something invisible, like a microaggression, like racism, um, like being the only in various situations. And so I just don't know if you can think your way out of um, racial trauma. And I think it is um, rude to even ask our clients to do that, in my opinion, in my personal and professional opinion, Um, because it doesn't really give much room for the client's experience. No, no. And I I mean, I love that you're, um, you know, sort of putting racial trauma you know, in comparison to other trauma, right? Which is like other trauma, kind of regardless of of what column you fall in or what, you know, boxes you check for other trauma, it's invalidating to suggest that your thoughts are your problem. Uh, It's even more so when the thoughts you have don't have credibility in the spaces that you exist in to say that your thoughts are your problem. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, um, and I really wish America would realize that because I think our race relations would be a lot better as a country and whole if we realized that it's not the thoughts, you know, and I've had well-meaning white people in my personal and even professional lives. Like you shouldn't think about it like that or no, I don't think they were meaning that. And that crap was very invalidating. And I have like coping skills and the language to talk about it. So I'm like, I just imagine like they're poor clients. Like they don't, they don't have the benefit of the language and that, you know, we may have being in this field a little more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can use coping strategies to like maybe breathing techniques and, and other things to get you to a better place so that you can process the trauma and safety. But um, I just don't know if a lot of these quote unquote evidence based treatment therapies that we use are best (laughs) for processing this sort of burden. Yeah, because if there's if the people who are designing the products here, you know, which are these theoretical orientations have no understanding of a particular problem like racial trauma, then the interventions are not going to address whole sections of people, you know. And And it's also like something that just came up in my mind as you were saying that is also the physical stress that this trauma puts on your body, right? Like, you know, it shows up in ER visits, chest pains, right? Heart palpitations. I know now there's a lot of research about the uh, impact of racism on maternal, Black maternal mortality, morbidity rates. Um, So, I mean, this shows up in every, every area of health. 
that brings up a question around uh, maybe kind of more of an existential question, I guess. But as we think about how embedded in so many systems and medical systems and behavioral health and our economic practices, how, how white supremacy is just sort of like it's got its hands in everything. How, what is your approach or thought or philosophy, I guess, around how do we work to heal trauma when the trauma is still happening? That's the question. <laughs> that's right. Like that's, that's a big question. And that's a part of the burden. How do we, right? Like I think is, this is where my social work hat comes on. It's a macro and a micro, right? It's a big and a little. Um, for me, how I handle it and address it is I get involved in my local communities. I'm advocating. I'm getting to know my school board representatives. I'm getting to know my um, North Carolina General Assembly representatives, like knowing who's running for federal office and what their stance is on racism, the black community and how are they going to help alleviate these problems that are, as you just said, are in every facet of life. So for me, that's how I deal with it on a macro level, advocating, encouraging my white friends and family that are, um, that know what's going on, encouraging them to speak up for people of color in their work settings, um, encouraging them to use their voices. And in a micro level, how do I deal with it in the therapy room is I validate it. I hear it. I express empathy. And then I just try to empower my clients to the best of my ability. I think also too giving language, letting them know, honey, you're not crazy. This is what we call a microaggression. Here's some, some stuff you can read on microaggression. Okay. Your manager reacted in this way. That's called white fragility. Here's some books you can read on white fragility, because I think also putting terms to it, it makes it so that clients like, okay, this is a thing. This is not just me. I'm not crazy. So that has been really helpful. Retreats. I've done some retreats because um, I think there's power in group and group healing and encouraging self-care, you know, but it is right. Like it is a, a good question of how do you heal in a trauma while you're experiencing said trauma? Because I mean, people have to pay their bills. They can't just quit their job. Mm-hmm. Right. And are you really, can you really change your boss? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but, um, do you know, teaching them how to advocate for themselves and really just, I think empowerment is the big thing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in self-care. Well, this might bring in one of the articles that you shared, which was, I think, really impactful. Let me see if I can get the name of it right. Okay. So this was uh, the article that was racial microaggression experiences and coping strategies um, of black women in corporate leadership. Um, so thinking about being in, I mean, this article talked about being in the role of, you know, in corporate leadership. So having, you know, authority and how low, 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 the representation is of black women in those roles. And so there's just, you know, so much stress just as a function of the representation. Um, but kind of applying that a little bit to your role as a therapist, I'm curious what happens when, let's say you're sitting with a white client, or I guess even just a non-black client who expresses racist ideas. 
Um, because I feel like so much of like what white counselors are sort of taught to work on is like broaching the racial differences and uh, just naming that it's there. But I mean, I can probably think of three times yesterday that someone said something that was like, that's a little racist, you know? So what is that like for you personally as a black woman? And then is that something that you would bring into the room? Yeah, I, th- my, my opinion of this has definitely changed as I have um, grown in the field. How I feel about it is I allow my parts to feel it like, oh, that was kind of racist. I may not say it like that in the room, but, you know, I do allow personally my parts to feel that. But, you know, this is how I feel about it. I'm black. I'm pro-black. I'm very black in social media. They knew who they were coming to when they came to me. I I live my advocacy and my advocacy oozes out even in my professional practice because I'm just, it is who I am. And so I I challenge those things. You know, I say it in a, it came up a lot in 2020. Mm, I bet. I mean, and I, sometimes I felt like, I was joking. I was like, I feel like my white clients are just saving all their black people questions for a session because that's all they want to talk about. <laughs> but if they're asking it, I'm going to answer it. Girl, I was giving people books to read. <laughs> Some of my white teachers, I was telling them to read uh, Why All the Black Kids Sit Together um, in the cafeteria, that book. I mean, I'm like, you know, if we, like, let's have these conversations because what we don't talk about either is the impact that racial trauma has on white people because it's not healthy for y'all either. No. To just be judgy and fearful and caught up in our, you know, kind of little, very limited way of understanding ourselves that is really just, we are not that it's not that we are anything. We're just not that. (laughs) Right. Right. And so there's this book called my grandmother's hands. And I know I recommended that to a lot of clients, um, black and white of just, how has this system impacted you and how are you functioning in it? Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. for me, it I address it in a therapy room. Like I said, I have a very relational approach to my clients. And so they know my heart. Um, I know their heart, but I'm not like a me too kind of therapist. Like I'm, I, I, I lovingly call people out on thoughts that may not be serving them. And that includes um, ones that have racial undertones. When you are in that space of calling it out, what does that do for you emotionally? Like, how does your spirit receive that, I guess, is maybe the weirdest way of asking it. But is that an expense for you? Is that a, I stayed in my values and in my truth, and so I feel solid in that? Like, what is what is that like in your system? Yeah, that's, that's a deep question. Um, I'm trying to... Now, I'm, look, I'm doing my own parts work right now, and I'm trying to... I see you checking in, like, with your parts. I I don't want to answer this part from my therapist part. I want to answer this from a more human part. For me, it, it, it is and was hard. It has a big burden on some of my parts, and, and it's triggering, right? It's very triggering. Um, especially when you're dealing with clients that may have power over other people, right? Like management. And I'm like, Oh, like this has to suck for your subordinates, you know, like, um, so for me, that is why I'm transitioning my practice into more of 
on the healing from racial trauma side, just because for me and my parts, the impact that I want to make on is, is helping my people who experience in these things survive and thrive. I don't have it in me to teach and pacify during therapy or during my free time. Like if I want to teach you about racism, that's a different service I can offer, but my emotional labor is not something that I want to spend on helping white people figure out what is and what is not racist. So that's something personal that I have. I've honestly have sat with that. Um, and I've been on leave for about three months and that's really been playing over in my head is how do this. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like, I mean, empowering might not be the right word. Cause I mean, as you're talking about it, it sounds like there's this is, I'm just resolved around this. This is just what needs to happen. Um, but yeah, just how important it is to hear that it really is okay to set boundaries and decide who it's going to fill you up to work with and who it's just going to totally pour you out to work with. Now, I will also say this. Um, this is where I'm torn because some of my best cases that I've worked with are of white people. And so I'm definitely not at a place where um, I only want to work with this. I only want to work with that. But I do want to I have a set of values and I have a set of assumptions that how I see the world. And if you align with this, then me and you will probably do well. And I'm your therapist and you're my client and, and we we work well together. So it was more of like an alignment of who I am. And that's why I, I, I love how as a field, therapists are starting to show up more of for who they are instead of like these robots that we were kind of programmed to be a long time ago, because, you know, it's a human connection. The therapeutic relationship really, I think is the healing agent. And so I just love how now therapists are having TikToks and Instagram videos and blogs. And so you can really see their personality to be like, this is my person. And I want to work with them. And so I think for me, it's more of an alignment of this is who I am. I'm not quieting that down. Well, and it goes back, I think, to what you were sharing about doing your own work and knowing your own parts. If you're going to have anything other than this very saccharine, I want to support you on your journey kind of presence in this field, then you have to have done the work of owning who you are and what your values are. You do. You do. I mean, and I think um, there's certain populations that people know, like, oh, I definitely don't work with that population. But what do you do when the parts are still activated, but it's not like a big, you know, like a big sort of thing, like some other populations that people are averse to working with? I wonder if we can take a closer look at one of the articles that you sent from the marriage and family article where it was talking about um, actually interviewing clients who are in therapy about the barriers rather than just what's keeping black clients out of therapy. It mentioned like how so many aspects of blackness have been pathologized. Um, so I'm interested in what aspects of either your experience or, you know, black clients that you've worked with, like what aspects of their existence, you know, are, non-Black counselors likely to get wrong, to misinterpret, and to pathologize? 
So I, I, I think that is like, that's a loaded question, right? Because I think one of the things that we have to look at is how is blackness viewed in the society that is ran by white supremacy? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I saw a video the other day that this lady was pretty much explaining like our skin color has been weaponized in this country. And so, yeah, I think it definitely does, of course, show up in the therapy room of mistrust, right? Assumptions is definitely coming up. Um, And I think um, this goes back to kind of how we started this conversation. I had to work with some assumptions when, when, when um, we were working in the substance abuse facility, right? Cause you assume that who's coming up to you is um, homeless or this or that, or, you know, lives on a bridge or has a certain type of insurance or doesn't have any money. And so I think one of the ways that that shows up also for this conversation is working with um, black clients is just what assumptions are, do you have when, when you're coming in the room? Are you assuming um, one of the things I noticed, like, um, you know, how, like when you're pregnant and your, your feet, your, your hands start to swell. And so it's hard to, um, wear your wedding band. Mm. And I had a lot of healthcare professionals assume that I was not married and it triggered in my mind if I was white and nine months pregnant. Where's your husband? See in the waiting room? Right. So I think, you know, just be mindful of various assumptions. Like, do you think this person was, are you surprised that they have a mom and a dad? Are you surprised that they came from or currently living in a middle or upper class like neighborhood? So I think that definitely is one of the ways that it shows up. Just being mindful of various. One of the things that I think it was this article talked about that I loved was respecting the aspect of religion in Mm African-American culture. Because I think a lot of times, especially now, people shy away from religion. Um, because I think a lot of people negate that with like some of the oppressive aspects of evangelicalism. Um, but I think also really understanding that in black, a lot of black communities and families, religion is a cornerstone, especially Christianity. And it is not to us, it's not that oppressive force that a lot of people associate with religion. And so I definitely, with all of my clients, I actually bring up religion because I was trained that if a client has a support, you bring that in the room so that that can be a support for them during their journey. Um, so during my assessments, I always ask what it, like, I'm not judging, I'm not, you know, telling you what to do, what not to do, but I just want to know what supports you have. So, um, do you identify with any religion? And if so, how is this going to show up during your recovery? Um, so that provides a lot of information and that also provides, I believe, permission for a client to bring it up during sessions without judgment. Something that shows up for me is when some, I'm not someone's first therapist, right? When they come in and they've had an experience of some sort. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of those experiences are pretty negative, um, regardless of who the client is, where they're coming from. Um, But when clients come to you after having worked with non-Black providers, and maybe specifically white providers, 
what do they share with you about those experiences? Oh, yeah. Um, definitely not the first for a lot. One of the themes that I've noticed is um, what they share. It almost feels like they may have felt gaslighted in some sessions in the past. Um, they were not validated or made to think that, and this kind of going back to the CBT conversation we were having earlier, that they just weren't looking at it the right way. The well-meaning white person, well, they didn't mean it. You're overreacting. Um, so I've definitely seen those themes come up. Um, so definitely mistrust in the system, in therapy. So it's almost like a, for some, it's almost like a breath of fresh air. Like, oh, I can just come in and then just connect with you um, because you understand my experience and you'll believe me when I talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's definitely a big theme I've seen in talking with clients. One thing I have noticed um, is, um, especially when working with working in more of the community mental health setting back in the day, was just a general mistrust of if I tell you this information, uh, how are you going to weaponize it? How are you going to use it against me? Are are my kids going to get taken away? Um, are you going to report me for this? Definitely saw that a lot in the community setting. Mm-hmm. How did you navigate that? That feels like such a sticking point for me is knowing that involving child protective services, for example, is, I mean, it's like really another kind of cop. Um, how do, how have you balanced that sort of, you know, the ethical mandate as a social worker with the institutional racism of the people you have to call. Yeah. I mean, cause you have to call. Right. And, and I've, unfortunately, if you work in this field long enough, you will call. Um, for me, how I do it is I believe in transparency. I will call CPS with a client in my office. You know, I'm very transparent of, Ooh, this is happening. I have to report it. Um, I explained that the last thing CPS really wants to do is to take your child away. And um, I will be with you throughout this process because I definitely want to help you get over this situation. I definitely want this to benefit you in the long run. And so I'll call. It'll be very transparent. Um, And even during the investigation or if it's opened during the I forget what they call like kind of treatment phase of CPS. Um, I serve as an advocate for my client to try Mm -hmm. to help them. Right. Because I also have the, I, Brene Brown talks about, I always have the thought that the person is trying the best that they can. And so I just, that is just an assumption that I go with that my client is trying the best that they can Right now, that does not meet the standard for the law. <laughs> I need you to try a little right. harder. With right. Help. And so I'm going to help you help yeah. yourself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that is, I think, just such a perfect example of it, what I connect with is like fierce compassion. 
You know, I think it's been something that shows up kind of in my own whiteness is the requirement to be nice when in order to be compassionate. And so that's like a big part of my work is recognizing that boundary setting and saying no can be compassionate. And you have just so much willingness as you describe this situation to set the boundary, but then still walk all the way with this person. Yeah, I mean, because it's they I mean, they know. I, I very rarely, like after the dust settles, was anybody ever surprised that I that you we've had to make those unfortunate calls, and it's the worst part, one of the worst parts of our job. But you know, we're we're protecting a child and we're helping a family, so that a year from now they will be in a much better place. So yeah, it is really like, oh, this is an awful situation. Oh, but I'm gonna help you. We're gonna get through it. We're gonna get through it. Well, last question personal question that I've been wrapping up each episode with is um, if you could go back to any part of your life, maybe to any younger part um, and offer that part or that time period yourself in that time period, one thing, advice, comfort, resources, what would you do? Oh, if I could go back to any part of my life and offer myself comfort or resources, what would I do? I would definitely go back to being a teenager Mm. and sit with those parts that are getting messages that are creating self-hatred or warped senses of how the world works, parts or situations that are developing as a part of Eurocentrism and then just love on those parts. Kind of like what I did with my daughter after her obsession with the Disney princess with the straight blonde hair. I would do that with my parts just so that they can be a little more um, affirmed and planted and self-trusting. Um when I got to adulthood and especially when I started working, I wish I would have trusted myself and, and known myself a little more. And that what your twenties are for. Oh, I guess I wish that they didn't have to be for that, but I definitely, I connect with that sort of the self-trust. Yeah. Just how hard it, how hard earned, you know, it can be. Yes. Yes, mm-hmm. definitely. So, yeah, that's what I that's one of one of the things I would do. <laughs> There's a few others, but Well, Keisha, I am so grateful for your time and for your open-heartedness today. I'm just what a great conversation and what wonderful wisdom you have shared. I'm just very grateful. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Well, that does it for our show today, folks. I'd love to hear from you, though, and keep this conversation going. So if you have questions or if you have some ideas for how you might work more effectively now with clients who are experiencing microaggressions, then please reach out. You can comment or connect on Instagram or Facebook at Beyond Therapy Podcast. If you want to get some NBCC-approved continuing education credit for listening, go to beyondtherapy.thinkific.com for more information. Thanks for listening. This is Dr. Candace Creaseman-Mowry signing off. 
Beyond Therapy is brought to you by Creaseman Counseling, mental wellness for all. Visit www.creaseman-counseling.com for more information. Thanks for listening. I hear that cry.